When uh, Ruth and I were studying the Bible with some non-Christians, one of the participants asked us, why does God show favoritism to the Israelites? Now, it's an understandable question, given that the Old Testament actually recounts many accounts of God delivering Israel from calamity and blessing them greatly. You know, take the Exodus, for example. Israel was probably not the only people group that had been enslaved. The Israelites were probably not the only ones who were encountering suffering. So why did God answer the cry for help and save them? The truth is, our perspective is a lot narrower than God's. The Lord graciously explained to us in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 5, why He redeemed Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. He says to them, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so we see that God's rescue of Israel from slavery is actually far from random. The Lord wanted Israel to experience His salvation so that they will obey His voice and keep His commandments. In this manner, Israel will actually function as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As holy priests, they would give God the worship that He deserves and to actually help others come to know Him. God's intention to make Israel into a holy nation that blesses others actually finds its roots in God's promise to Abraham, and is again reiterated in passages like Isaiah 49 verse 6, which states that He will make Israel as a light for the nations, that His salvation may reach the end of the earth. In other words, God redeemed Israel for the good of the rest of this world, for through Israel, God's salvation will be offered to the end of the earth. And this is why God actually records in the Old Testament much of His work amongst Israel. In order for Israel to be a light to the nations, they had to first come into fellowship with God and secondly, live according to God's will that is expressed in His commandments. And this is actually what we see in the book of Exodus. Right earlier in the first 19 chapters of Exodus, God establishes Himself as Israel's God. Israel had heard of Abraham's God from their forefathers, but their enslavement may have made them question their relationship with God or even doubt His existence. However, their misery under Pharaoh's oppressive rule made them aware of their need for a Savior. They were powerless against mighty Egypt. And they actually needed someone to address injustice and to rescue them from slavery. And so they cried out to the God that they had heard about. Exodus chapter 4 verse 31 tells us that when God had sent Moses and Aaron to them with mighty signs, they believed in Him and they bowed their heads and they worshipped God. Through the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the miraculous provision of water, manna, and quail, and divine protection from raiders, the Israelites encountered the power, the grace, the mercy, and the love of God. There was no doubt that God was actually for them, that He had chosen them 
to be his beloved people. And Israel was overjoyed. And so after experiencing delivery from slavery, they joyfully sang in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. It is in light of Israel declaring the God who saved me is my God that the Lord will now teach them what it means to be his people. Before Israel experienced God's deliverance, they were Pharaoh's slaves. They were subjected to the laws of Egypt and forced to obey Pharaoh's commands. But once they were liberated from bondage, they became citizens of God's kingdom. They were now his people, called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As such, the passage that we're studying today, Exodus chapter 20, actually marks a pivotal point in Israel's history where God actually personally instructs Israel in his ways. The Lord, who had brought them out of Egypt, will now teach them how to live out their new identity. This will kind of be akin to a you know, new citizenship induction program that immigrants would have to go through. If an immigrant wanted to receive a highly coveted Singapore passport and have CDC vouchers to purchase free hawker food, then they must first be subject to the laws of our country. If an immigrant wants to change his citizenship, he must willingly replace his old identity with the new identity that Singapore gives him. He must learn the laws of our country and abide by them. He must be a good representative of Singapore and pledge to achieve happiness, prosperity, and progress for our nation. Hence, God's address to Israel in Exodus chapter 20, which is famously known as the Ten Commandments, is actually best viewed as a crash course on how people who have experienced God's salvation should live out their new identity. By obeying God's commandments, Israel will lead distinct lives from the rest of the world. They will be a holy nation that is a set apart for God. And then they will be a light to the nations, teaching people about God. So let us now open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, indeed, we thank you so much that through faith in Jesus, we are now called your beloved children. We thank you that you have saved us and that you also teach us all that we need to know of how to live a life that pleases you. I pray, Father, that you continue to bless our time as we study the book of Exodus, in particular as we look at the Ten Commandments this morning, that your Holy Spirit will illumine our hearts and minds to not only understand this passage in its context, but to hear what you are saying to us. May your precious words help us to love you more, to trust more in Jesus, and to be the people that you desire us to be. All this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So picture with me, Israel now gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai as we hear God's addressed to them in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, in his address to Israel, God actually gives them ten words that we commonly call the Ten Commandments. Each commandment clearly communicates God's expectations so that Israel will know how to live as a holy nation. The first commandment warns Israel not to follow the polytheistic practices of their surrounding nations. Dominant societies like Egypt actually sought out different gods for different purposes. They would have a god of war, a god of money, a god of fertility, and so forth. But God had taught the Israelites, especially through the ten plagues, that He alone is God. He had proven over and over again that He is greater than all these so-called gods of Egypt. He could even part the Red Sea, and He could cause water to gush forth from a rock. Most importantly, God is actually the one who had redeemed Israel from slavery. He alone had heard their cry for help. He alone had come to their rescue. Therefore, God alone is worthy of worship. And to worship any other deity would actually to be say otherwise. Hence, the first mark of a holy nation is actually to be monotheistic. There can be no worship of any other God except the one true God. Israel 
must only worship the God who has saved them. The second commandment warns Israel not to dishonor their Creator. Because God created all things and nothing exists without God, it is sacrilegious to actually make a carved image to represent God. The Creator cannot be represented by something that the created make. Worse, worshiping a man-made object actually steals the glory that is due to God. You see, instead of focusing on our Creator, we end up focusing on our creation. Instead of giving thanks to the giver, we become consumed by the gift. This is why God describes Himself as a jealous God. Whilst we are often used to ascribing a negative connotation to jealousy, it's actually quite different in this particular context. God's jealousy is justified and warranted. Because God is the creator and we are the creation, He deserves our full devotion. Thus, His jealousy actually rightly communicates the truth that He alone should be worshipped. God's people cannot bow down and serve any other God and idol. To do so would incur great wrath, and God will not tolerate high treason. He cannot allow His people to commit spiritual adultery. And so He communicates these really harsh consequences for the worship of idols. He says no one can pin the blame on their parents. They can't say, my parents forced me too. This is what my parents taught me. All who worship idols communicate their hatred of God and will be punished. But in contrast, those who love God and, not, and do not worship anyone else will actually be greatly rewarded. Those who love God will experience His steadfast love and blessings. That's the second mark of a holy nation is actually the refusal to worship and serve idols. Instead, this holy nation will love the Lord with all their heart, strength, and mind. Now, names are highly important and signify one's essence. Thus, we are taught to use people's names respectfully, especially when they are our superiors. This is why we don't address the heads of states or monarchs by their first name. Similarly, because God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, His name must not be tossed around lightly or misused. It should not be used as a curse word or a way of conveying the surety of one's word. Thus, the third mark of a holy nation is to not use the Lord's name in vain. Through their careful and respectful use of God's name, others will learn to revere God and to give Him the honor that he deserves. The fourth commandment exhorts Israel to actually visibly live out God-centered lives. Asians have a reputation for being hardworking because we believe that the harder that one works, the more we will receive. And back in Moses' day, people actually had a similar mindset. In the pursuit of wealth, people would work daily. The more hours that a farmer spent in the field, the more he would expect to reap. Traders would want to keep doing business regardless of the day of the week. 
They would work as long as money, there was money to be made. Therefore, God's law concerning the Sabbath was actually quite unique to Israel. Resting on the seventh day would actually set Israel apart from the rest of their neighbors in the same way that circumcision of males actually set them apart from others. This is because like circumcision, observing the Sabbath was actually an outward sign of the covenant that they were a part of. Not following the world's pattern of working continuously for personal advancement actually showed that Israel was different. The highest priority wasn't to be the accumulation of wealth, but living for God. Keeping the weekly Sabbath ensured that Israel never neglected worshipping God. It reminded Israel life is not all about meeting our needs and accumulating riches. Rather, they were to pause from their labors for a whole day, mindful that God actually deserved their full attention. You know, when Queen Elizabeth II was lying in state, thousands actually paused from their labors and they queued for up to 24 hours just to spend a minute paying their respects to her. And this is because these mourners recognized Elizabeth as their sovereign and worthy of their devotion. And we know that the God of the Bible is so much more greater than any earthly monarch. And hence, He is worthy of much greater worship. Hence, Israel was to spend every seventh day worshiping God. Now, the Sabbath is not just about worshiping God. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus explains that the Sabbath was made for man. God cares about his people, and he knows that we need rest. You know, working continuously is not good for one's health and well-being. And God wants his people to go out and to enjoy his creation, to enjoy the fruit of their labors, to enjoy the family and the friends that he has given them. God is for restoration, and he desires his people to be refreshed. God's compassion is also evident in His Sabbath laws. God prevents employers from overworking their employees. He commands Israel to let their servants, their foreigners, and even their animals to rest on the seventh day. Further, every seventh year, farmers are to actually even let the land rest and allow the poor and the animals to eat whatever produce is there. Finally, Observance of the Sabbath is also a great expression of faith in God. Rest reminds us that God is ultimately our provider and that an extra day of work may not actually be the answer to our problems. Psalm 127 verses 1 to 2 famously says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. God's people humbly acknowledge that fruit is not based on our effort, but it is a gracious gift from God. Hence, the fourth mark of a holy nation is to regularly pause from work to spend time with God. A holy nation 
loves God more than any earthly treasure and trusts God to provide as they prioritize fellowship with Him and His people. Now, whilst the first four commandments focus on Israel's relationship with God, the remaining six focus on their relationship with one another. A holy nation doesn't only rightly relate to God, but to also to each other. So the fifth commandment recognizes parents as God's representatives to children. Maybe it's because we're preaching through this that Grace has decided for the 11 and 12 years old to sit in today. And so children, honor your father and mother. If God's people say that they honor God, then they will honor the representatives that God has given them. They will honor their parents. Now, honoring one's parents is not the elixir to eternal life. Rather, God actually just wants us to see the relationship between obeying His commands and blessings. Those who honor God by honoring their parents will enjoy God's provisions and blessings. Hence, the fifth mark of a holy nation is respecting God's authority by honoring their parents. In the sixth commandment, God defends the sanctity of life. God is the giver of life and called every one of us into existence. He's the one who formed us in our mother's womb. Thus, every life is precious to God, and He demands that we share this value. We must not take matters into our own hands and kill a person. God has given us rulers and governments to reward those who are good and to punish evildoers. We must not take the place of God and decide which baby lives or dies. Ultimately, only God has the right to determine who lives. Thus, the sixth mark of a holy nation is acknowledging that God is the giver of life by treasuring and protecting every life. Seventhly, God has a high view of covenantal relationships like marriage. Adultery is a grievous sin because it is a sign of unfaithfulness. God is faithful to us and He expects us to be faithful to Him and the relationships that we enter into before Him. You know, when a man and woman actually join together in holy matrimony, they become one flesh. To commit adultery is to defile what God has joined together. Thus, the seventh mark of a holy nation is recognizing God's faithfulness by having a high view of marriage. In the Eighth Commandment, God is against those who take what He has actually given to others. God knows what is best for us, and He has decided what to give to each of His people. Hence, we are to trust Him to provide for our needs rather than to go and take matters into our own hands. God desires a holy nation that reflects their trust and their faith in Him by not stealing In the ninth commandment, God is concerned about those who bear false witness or, you know, spew lies for their own benefit. 
Lying is a distortion of truth, and it is harmful. Because God is a God of truth, He cannot stand lies. His people must not perpetuate the lies of the devil. Rather, people must desire truth, and they must defend it. Thus, the ninth mark of a holy nation is being zealous for truth. And finally, the tenth commandment focuses on the attitude of the heart. God doesn't just care about outward appearances and actions. More importantly, God actually sees our heart, and He's against dissatisfied hearts that covet what He has not provided. God desires His people to actually find their contentment in Him rather than in things that they think they need to have. Hence, the tenth mark of a holy nation is finding contentment in God. In summary, Israel would actually be a holy nation if they only worshipped God, did not serve idols, did not use the Lord's name in vain, kept the Sabbath holy, honoured parents, treasured life, had a high view of marriage, trusted in God's provisions, advocated truthfulness, and found contentment in God. And in so doing, they would be a light to the nations. And everyone who interacts with Israel will immediately note how different they are from the rest of the world. They would quickly learn that the God that Israel worships is different. He is not deaf and mute like idols, but he's living and active. God has acted in history to save his people and to provide for his people, and his commandments are good. They will learn God is the creator. He alone should be revered. They will learn that God desires to actually be in communion with his people. Life is not meant to be about pursuing one's interests, but enjoying God. They will learn that God cares about his people. Parents and marriages are to be honored. Honesty and truth are to permeate our communities. And people are to find contentment in what God has provided. Friends, So much more could be said about the Ten Commandments. But in this brief study, I hope that we have come to understand why God gave Israel His commandments. Obeying these commandments were never a means for Israel to gain salvation or earn God's favor. Rather, these commandments were actually given to help Israel to live out their new identity as God's people. Through the obedience of these commandments, Israel would function as a kingdom of priests. They would be a holy nation set apart for the Lord's work. Through their distinct worship of God and behaviors, they would serve as a light to the nations, helping others come to know and love Him. So let's now read about the response of the people in verses 18 to 21 once again. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. <clears throat> you 
We live in an age where there are many mediums of communication. You can receive information from a printed book, electronically through a screen, or even through an immersive experience at the IMAX theater. Israel probably wished that God could have just, you know, emailed them his laws. However, God chose to personally deliver them to Israel in a very experiential way. Accompanying his voice were these great displays of power and majesty. And understandably, Israel was very, very shaken by the thunder, the lightning, the trumpet sounds, and the smoking mountain. But it was for their good that God had allowed Israel to witness his majesty and power. Just in case Israel was wondering whether or not they should listen to God and obey all these commandments, God visibly reminds them that he is a God who should be feared. You know, God isn't a jolly old man whose words have no authority. God is all-powerful, and he speaks with great authority. At the same time, Moses assures the people that they shouldn't be in fear of God in the same way that one might be you know, fearful of your life when you encounter a wild boar on the streets. God's display of power is not meant to terrorize them, but to keep them from sinning. Hence, they are not to be in fear of God trying to harm them, but having this godly reverence for God's holiness that leads to resisting sin. The right fear of God doesn't make people run from God, but it encourages people to obey His commandments. And the blessing is that obeying God's commandments are not only pleasing to God, but they are for our good. If Israel actually lived as a holy nation, they would enjoy many blessings, like living in the promised land that is just flowing with milk and honey. They will have the honor of being God's light to the nations. Now that we understand the original context and the purpose of the Ten Commandments, we shall consider its relevance and meaning for us. As Christians, we celebrate the good news that it is by faith in Jesus alone that we are saved. We know that our salvation is not earned, but it's a gracious gift from God. And as a result, we may tend to overemphasize God's grace and de-emphasize any laws that we find in the Bible. Some might even say, since we are in Christ, then the laws of the Old Testament can be cast aside. But is it really God's intention for us to ignore the Ten Commandments? Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. God's laws were actually not repealed when Christ came. Rather, God's laws actually found their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus affirmed God's laws and he obeyed them perfectly. 
And in so doing, he revealed that he is the perfect son of God who can take our place on the cross. Hence, God's laws are significant to the Christian faith, and they should not be neglected. And so in our remaining time, we shall consider three reasons why the Ten Commandments are important to Christians. Firstly, the commandments actually teach us about God's character. You know, most of the world, we all know about the President of the United States, but what do we actually know of the President's character? Unless we are a family member or a friend, it would be near impossible to know the President in a more intimate level. Thus, it's really significant that our great God would actually choose to disclose Himself to us. Although we are mere mortals who are undeserving and unworthy, God graciously reveals so much about Himself through His Word. And in particular, the Ten Commandments actually teach us a lot about God's character. He teaches us about His supremacy. There's no one else like Him. No one else has such power. No one else shows such care towards His people. No one else hears the cry of His people and will actually act to save them at such a cost. He reveals to us his jealousy. God is not okay with spiritual adultery. We are to be faithful to him by giving him the worship that he deserves as our creator. We're not to try to make any graven image or serve an idol. As God's creatures, we are to love him the most and we are to desire his affection and his steadfast love. He communicates to us his holiness. God will not tolerate evil. He will punish sin. He expresses his desire for regular fellowship with us. You know, our faith is not like a typical vassal king kind of relationship where the monarch only cares about the value that his subject will add to the kingdom. Rather, God actually desires to spend time with us. He wants us to worship Him and to enjoy Him. Further, God also desires us to be open about our faith. We're not to hide our conversion from our parents or friends. Instead, we're actually to live out our faith so that the world will know Him. God also shows us through His commandments how much He cares about His people. He desires His people to live in harmony Thus, he commands his people, honor your parents, treasure life, be faithful in marriage, be honest, be truthful in your dealings, find contentment in him rather than allow covetousness to lead to harming others. Secondly, the Ten Commandments show us why we need Jesus. In an age of relativism, people try to avoid making any forms of judgment, even when there are grave implications of not addressing bad behavior. A person who abandons his family to find greater sexual satisfaction is not condemned by society. Rather, people will say things like, all that matters is one's happiness. In stark contrast, God communicates absolute standards. There's no sliding scale by which people can convince themselves that they're really not that bad. God states what is right 
and what is wrong in his eyes. Hence, all who know God's word are never in doubt of what will please or anger God. You know, God's commandments are like a yardstick that help us to see how far we are from living the life that he desires. And it can be quite crushing to know that despite our best efforts to be a good person, we still fail to live up to God's holy standard. But the good news for us is that God does not expect us to be able to love and obey Him on our own strength. Instead, He actually graciously offers us a new heart through faith in Jesus. He graciously says in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 27, And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And then I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Whilst it is important to acknowledge how far we have fallen short of God's righteousness, let us not be bogged down by our failures to keep God's commandments. Instead, let us run straight to Jesus for forgiveness. Let us give thanks. Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. He has taken away our guilty stains. Let us rejoice. God has actually performed a divine heart surgery and gives us a new heart when we believe in Jesus. For it is only with a new heart from God that we can then love Him with all our heart, mind, and soul and can actually love our neighbor as ourselves. Let us also find comfort in this divine helper that Jesus sends. For through the Holy Spirit, we have divine empowerment to actually succeed where we have once failed. The Holy Spirit will cause us to walk in God's statutes and to be careful to obey God's rules. If you're visiting today, we're really thankful that you can be with us. And we pray that you will reflect on God's gift and offer of a new heart. Our gracious God offers to cleanse you of all your sins, to take away all your guilty stains. And He desires to enable you to now live righteously before Him and with one another. And so please share with the person who brought you to church or anybody else from Grace just about your thoughts and reflections on God's offer to you. Thirdly, the Ten Commandments help us grow in our faith. <clears throat> when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He replied in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus' summary of the commandments actually inform us how we should be viewing God's laws. Although the commandments are addressing specific behaviors, 
they are ultimately concerned about the attitude of our heart towards God. Our keeping of God's laws is dependent on the love that we have for God. If we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, then we will keep His commandments. We're not going to view them as burdensome, but joyfully obey them. And if we love God, then we will love God's people. Conversely, if we have difficulty loving God's people, then we should consider the love that we really have for God. If we find God's commandments burdensome, then we should reflect on the amount of love that we have for God. Reflecting on our attitude towards the Ten Commandments can actually help to expose the hidden idols of our heart. It can shed light on the people or passions or values that we love more than God. It can point out the areas that we need to be growing in love. So let us take time today to ask ourselves some questions. Who am I most concerned about pleasing? What keeps me from having regular fellowship with God and His people? Why do I find myself wanting to hide my faith at times? Why do I find it difficult to honor my parents? Why am I tempted to be unfaithful, dishonest, or untruthful? What does my discontentment reveal about my faith in God? May our reflections help us to identify the hidden idols in our heart that keep us from loving God more. And may the Holy Spirit that God has given us actually use God's promises to help us to jettison these idols and to help us grow in the faith. I really encourage you to share the areas that God is prompting you to grow in the faith with a brother or sister in Christ so that they can journey with you and encourage you with God's promises. The Lord who had brought Israel out of Egypt taught them how to live out their new identity in Exodus 20. He gave them 10 commandments to shape the way that they are to worship Him and live with one another. And He instilled in them godly fear so that they will not sin. Similarly, the God who has saved us has actually given us a new identity. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that those who believe in Jesus are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And to help us to live out this new identity, He has given us the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments. And this is why even the Ten Commandments that God has given Israel are still important to us. They teach us about God's character, our need for Jesus, and how to grow in our faith. And to enable us to live up to this high calling of being a royal priesthood and a holy nation, God has given us new hearts. He has put His Spirit within us. So let us give thanks to God 
by using our new hearts to love Him and allowing His Spirit to help us joyfully obey His commands. Let us pray. Father, indeed, we are just so thankful at how gracious a God you are, that you have such mercy and tender love towards each one of us, that even when we were far away from you, you would send Jesus to rescue us from our sinful ways, that you would take out our sinful hearts, our hearts of stone, and that you give us new hearts of flesh, hearts that are now enabled to love you. And so, Father, I pray that you help us to use these new hearts for your glory to love you, and to love your people. Oh, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are our divine helper. Help us on this journey of growing together, of pressing on for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.